How much does it actually cost to make an action figure? That's the topic for today's Distazapod, and I'm going to answer your questions. The entire concept of manufacturing an action figure line is something that's very elusive for a lot of people uh, in terms of the finances. H- how do you do it? How much does it cost? What do you have to spend? How much is going to come out of my wallet in order to make my action figure dream come true? The short answer is a lot. It is prohibitively expensive. There's a reason why not everybody sort of gets to, you know, take their ideas and their brain and have those transmutated into a tiny piece of articulated plastic. Uh, That reason is it's money, baby. It costs a lot of money to do it. So as you guys know, in November, we launched the Kickstarter for Action Figure of the Month Club. Our goal was, I think it was $20,000, and that was sort of our, you know, our bare minimum that we needed to proceed with the first figure, which was the Desert Rat. Now, uh, what people found out after the campaign was I was sort of hedging a bet, and I actually committed to tooling the Desert Rat um, before the campaign. I sort of put my own money up front with the hope that the campaign would fund and I would kind of be reimbursed for that project. And thankfully, it worked out okay. But what was that amount? How much did I actually put up? And what did the money that was raised in the Kickstarter actually go to? Um, So I'm prepared to sort of peel back the veil and give you guys some real numbers. Now, these are not the actual numbers of my sort of financial arrangement Uh, For the Desert Rat, they are kind of estimated. You know, I've moved to the highest dollar amount. Um, I'm also not going to reveal unit costs because unit costs are a proprietary thing. Factories typically don't want you to share your unit costs because you may get a deal that other vendors do not get and they don't want people to have that kind of leverage to influence them. Um, It's also worth noting that I tend to buy in bulk from my factories. I order several months to a year's worth of product all at once. So I am usually privy to a lower unit cost than a lot of manufacturers make. So with those caveats that, you know, I'm typically rounding up and I'm I'm boosting these numbers a tiny bit to cover for incidentals I may not be thinking of in the present mind that do incur a cost. This is generally a pretty honest roadmap of what an action figure project actually requires. So the biggest chunk that you're gonna put down is going to be your steel tool, or tooling as it's called, or mold as it's called. It it is in actuality a steel block that is used to mold the superheated plastic that's injected into it. So if this thing weighs a ton, they're massive, they have to be moved by steel pulley chain systems, Um, you know, once they're in the factory in China, it's very hard to extricate them and move them elsewhere. These are massive pieces of machinery. And this is really your biggest expense when it comes to the manufacturing of plastics. Um, so for me, I make relatively simplified four inch action figures. The numbers here are going to reflect that. My entire business model is one of economy. I really 
try to find what is the best product I can make with a very sort of conservative amount of capital required. Part of that is, this is how I learned how to make toys. You know, being an unpaid intern at Playalong and then working for Jazzwares. Jazzwares in particular was completely bottom line focused. You could not do anything in that company if you were not going to meet the target unit price. And that typically meant you start as cheap as you can and you whittle away features and paint deco until you hit that target. And while that is not a particularly artistic way to make toys, it is a very good way to run a business. And that has stuck with me in Knights of the Slice. I try to sort of make things that are affordable and make things that are cheap that I have good margin in. And because of that, I think I'm still here five years later. I think it's very easy to, to go big and ambitious and have a lot of articulation and paint apps and accessories and have, you know, 13 different figures you release at a time. But, you know, I think you can see some of those companies start to struggle after their first or second release because it's, it's massive, it's ambitious, and, and that ambition eats up a lot of money. So that being said, my tooling cost for Desert Rat is about 10 grand. And you're going to have different terms with different factories, but I like to put 50% up front to show a factory I'm serious and I want priority in the sort of queue for having these steel tools done. Um, so, you know, I was in a position where I'm cutting a check or making a bank wire for five grand to get this project up off the ground. Um, this sort of contemplates two separate cavities within the mold. This might be a bit in the weeds or insider baseball, but a mold it has different components within it. Uh, those components are different body parts or accessories, and there's some level of, you know, swappability there, where if you don't want to run a certain uh, accessory with a figure, you can take that portion of the mold out, that cavity of the mold out, and replace it with something else or block it off altogether. So uh, for Desert Rat, we're looking at, boy, let's see here, must have been about 16 different cavities, two big steel molds, and that ran me about 10 grand, which that's a great price on tooling. I, I really think, you know, anybody else who's starting off doing a four inch figure, and if it has more articulation than Desert Rat, you're looking at easily 15 to 20 grand. Um, and that's just your tool. The, the tool is only one portion of what you have to outlay to make an action figure. So in the case of Desert Rat, came in at about 10 grand. I put the money up front. They started the process. Prior to the steel tool happening, there was a huge outlay of cash that happens in this sort of pre-production stage. And within that stage, you have things like making the sculpt, having revisions done to the sculpt, paying for a 3D scan of the sculpt, getting resin copies made, doing a paint master, shipping, you know, these items back and forth from artists to China. So, uh, and also um, artwork, control art, marketing materials. I spent, uh, I'm going to estimate about $2,500 in pre-production. It, it actually is probably could be about double that because there's been a lot of people that have contributed and I use a lot of subcontractors and I 
you know, typically like to pay people um, a good wage, so they want to work with me again. <laughs> and uh, for some reason, my Google Home is picking up on my conversation and asking questions. Very odd to live in the future with Big Brother watching. Um, so anyway, I have earmarked here about $2,500 in pre-production. That covers your sculpt and gives you the basic bones that you need in order to, you know, get a project quoted and, and start the, the sort of steel tool uh, process. Then the other big cost is your actual product. So you've paid for your steel tool, but every single unit that gets pushed out of that tool and gets painted and gets put in a package, you gotta pay for those too. You have your unit cost. Um, some factories will sort of build your tooling into your unit cost. So they're basically amortizing that $10,000 against, you know, however many hundreds of pieces you order. Say it's, let's say it's a thousand, just to keep it a nice easy uh, number. Um, so then they would build that into your unit cost. I prefer to always have things separate. I like to see what the actual cost of the steel tool is, and I want to see what my actual unit cost is and pay those separately. So while your steel tool is being made and you've put down five grand to kind of get that up and running, you're going to start designing your control art and you're going to place your order for the product that they will manufacture once the tool is done and you've tested it and seen samples. Uh, typically, well, in this case, I spent about five grand on the actual product. So every single, again, I buy for about a year's worth of products. So let's say it's 12 different styles of Desert Rat, all the Paint Deco. With Paint Deco comes copper spray masks that have to be made, and those are basically fabricated to lay over the figure so they can spray it with a gun and add the details like pouches or buttons or things like that. Um, so, you know, I say it's another, could be anywhere from three to five grand, but for, for this argument's sake, let's say we spent about five grand on that. Then the thing that people often don't factor in to their overall scheme here, and the, and the thing that really took me a long time to figure out the cost of and factor it in, is your air freight. So you have to get your goods from China over here, and the goods may have to leave China, go to Hong Kong, and then be air freighted over. So you may have to pay for inland transportation as well. These costs can be nominal, but they do add up. And if you don't know what you're doing and you don't have a good air freight rate, you're gonna get murdered on this. And this is gonna add, you know, it could be as much as $8 per unit to your figures. And if that happens, you know it eats up your margin and you're not making money. You're actually struggling to break even. Um, <clears throat> I'm lucky enough that uh, we ship so much product that I actually get very good rates. I use FedEx for air freight. They have a best rates line. I, I'm not sure what qualifies somebody to use to get the best rates, um, you know, status, but they're, they've been really great to work with and they've gotten us some fantastic deals. So for Desert Rat, I'm gonna 
say that the air freight shipment cost about $600. And that's a fantastic rate. I think if I were planning this as a first time toy maker, I would build in another $1,000 to $1,200, depending again on quantity, how much you're actually shipping over here. Um, you know, I would build that up. I would even double that. Um, also, you know, Air Freight is a great option right now. If you are a company that's doing tens of thousands of units and you need an entire container load of goods, then you're going to have to ship it by sea. And that's a whole nother <laughs> pineapple under the sea. And it is so much more complicated. And there is, you know, you're going to be waiting at least a month, if not more. And then you got to worry about dock strikes and customs and everything else. <clears throat> it's an unbelievable hassle. So I count myself lucky that I do enough volume that I get good rates, but I do small enough volume that I can still utilize air freight. And, uh, you know, I think that's uh, part of the reason the line still works financially. So if you add all those things up, if you add up the steel tool, if you add up the product itself, if you add up the pre-production development costs, and you add up the air freight, that gives us just under 18 grand. Um, and I think that's a, that's a pretty, I'm pretty confident in that number. Um, that's, you know, more or less what Desert Rat cost. And you start to understand that, you know, asking for 20 grand on Kickstarter is actually pretty conservative because what I portrayed and what I offered in Kickstarter is not just Desert Rat, it is 12 months worth of product. And you start to see uh, how, how crazy low 20 grand of an ask is because, you know, this only sort of, this is our admission to the event. This doesn't cover us for the rest of the year. Um, but, you know, again, this is also, these are really well, uh, argued numbers. At this point, I have enough repetition with factories and enough relationships that I can push and I have leverage to use and I can sort of, you know, I can negotiate the best prices possible. I think if it's your first time working with a factory or you're just starting out, it might be hard to kind of achieve this just by virtue of having not had that, that much um, repetition doing it. Oh, actually, you know what? There's another statistic broken down here that I didn't add into this. Uh, so the actual cost of all the spray masks on Desert Rat was $696. Um, that's pretty right on the money for a four inch figure. Um, you're going to spend probably between 500 to a thousand. You can even go as high as two grand on the spray masks, depending on how crazy the paint deco is. You know, the spray masks, they're worth the money. You can use those in every additional production you do, and they really make figures much more dynamic. So it's a worthwhile investment. But if we add that one in there, you know, that gets us, uh, that's going to put us at about 18.5. And I think that's uh, a pretty accurate depiction of a seasoned toy company being able to negotiate heavily to sort of land a toy project. I think 18.5 is, you know, a reasonable, well, 
you know, a reasonably constructed picture of the finances of it. The thing that's missing from this, of course, is the cost of my time. Um, if this was a third-party project that I was doing for somebody else on their behalf, which I don't do anymore, thankfully, I don't do any client work, um, you know, you're going to have to build in another uh, probably, you know, five grand a month for a project manager, for somebody who's really sort of there doing it. The other thing that's not listed on here that is super, super important, especially if you're a first-time manufacturer, is a trip overseas to see not only the business offices in Hong Kong, but also visiting the actual factory in mainland China. And that itself requires additional visas and everything else. So, you know, if this is client, if this was a client project we're talking about, I would build in another five grand for a minimum of six months and then another, you know, say $3,500 for airfare travel, incidentals, etc., visa um, to visit Hong Kong and China. So you can see how very quickly, you know, there are additional costs that kind of compound the entire project. And, uh, you know, that's why it's, it's kind of hard to do. And there's a high barrier of entry here because it's, uh, it requires so much capital. It's really, it's quite insane. And, you know, in going through this, uh, it just makes me very happy that I'm in a position where, you know, that money is available and, and can be raised from you guys and can be put towards things like this. And, um, you know, it makes me very grateful. I also think, you know, going back to that idea of taking the Patreon money and booking a flight to China and giving you guys a behind-the-scenes look at exactly what I covered here, um, that's very enticing, and I think we're getting very close to being able to do that. And that can sort of illuminate a whole bunch, a whole nother dimension to this, you know. It'll really, it'll kind of make you guys an experts at this, this whole process, which is interesting. Got a couple Q&As as well that I'm going to cover right now. Uh, Philip Barrera asks... If you're not working in the toy industry, what other work would you be doing instead? Um, I, th you know, when I was in college and I took a professional development class, they made us make a list of every company first the the field you wanted to work in, and then every company in those fields that you would be happy working for. And for me, it was easy because I thought about this my whole life. It was either comics or video games or toys. And it just so happened that I lived very close to a couple toy companies, coincidentally. Um, so, you know, I, I think if I wasn't doing toys today, I would probably still be in entertainment licensing because that's a very lucrative sort of field. Um, and it's relatively interesting. And you get to go to fun premiere parties and, you know, get free swag. It's not a bad living by any stretch. It's just a little vapid and, you know, not creatively fulfilling. Um, if I wasn't doing anything in fun areas, I, I've always sort of, I have a hankering to like go to law school and get my law degree. Um, cause I find law fascinating and the best class I ever took was, um, uh, entertainment copyright law. And actually 
I just remembered this is going to be a super fun episode coming soon of Destaza Pod, where I'm going to talk about Marilyn Manson's Antichrist Superstar and that copyright entertainment law class that I took because the instructor of that class was actually Marilyn Manson's attorney. And he was a brilliant, brilliant lawyer. And he did such a great job of sort of teaching me the ins and outs of, uh, you know, what is copyright law? What, how are these things enforced? What are, you know, what, what does that all mean? And so look forward to a review of Antichrist Superstar by Marilyn Manson with my entryway into copyright law. Clifftron 1986 asks, what is the biggest challenge to designing an action figure? And what is more important, having tons of accessories or having really good articulation? Um, So the biggest challenge to designing an action figure today for me is um, finding good talent, particularly in sculpting. And, uh, you know, obviously I work with Erwin Papa and Ann Suck a lot, and those guys are tremendous. But I'm at the velocity now where I need more sculptors, but I don't just need sculptors. I need people with a specific voice in their work that is highly stylized. Um, A good example would be Better Days Toys. Uh, Our friend Julio from uh, Spain who sculpted Hob. He's a fantastic, fantastic sculptor. And he has personality in his sculpts. And I would literally write him a blank check to sculpt whatever he wanted and I would make it into a toy because I think he is so fantastic. But he's a very busy guy and he's in high demand, so he's not accessible to me now. Um, another person who's a great example is uh, Alien Robot Monster, um, who you probably follow on Instagram. If you don't, you should be. You should also be following him on Patreon. He does fantastic work. Um, he's done some very cool Stranger Things Keshi um, really phenomenal artist and a guy who really has a visual style that feels a little bit like Bengus from Capcom or, you know, just has so much personality. And I think that's what my challenge is now is finding sculptors of that caliber that are available because a lot of these guys are super busy. You know, they have other projects or other careers. Finding, you know, finding those people and and continuing to work and collaborate with more and more physical sculptors. I think for most projects, not where I am today, the biggest challenge is definitely capital, as we've sort of just had laid out for us in, you know, the earlier part of this uh, podcast. To answer the second part of the question, what's more important, having tons of accessories or having really good articulation? Obviously, I'm an outlier here because... I would not choose articulation. I think I like the style of toys I make. They're intentionally minimally articulated to preserve sculpt and to keep them economically feasible. And I would rather have a toy that is like my Knights of the Slice with a ton of accessories. Like the Old Knight is a great example. I'm much more happier having the Old Knight with a giant arm cannon and a sword and a bandolier and an alternate hand than I am with any of the other four-inch hyper-articulated figures that 
you know, the feet fall off or the armor doesn't fit or X, Y, and Z. Um, that's just my personal take and that's sort of the type of toys I'm making. So I'm in, I'm of the, uh, you know, I'm strongly in the camp of having lots of accessories over articulation. Now, the question says having really good articulation, I think lends itself to another point. By good articulation, I would say articulation that works, you know, because it doesn't ultimately matter how many joints you have or how many cuts you have on a figure. If the articulation doesn't work and the pieces fall apart or, you know, they stick and break or they just don't work, you know, it's it's not very good. It's not very useful. So, you know, I'm of the I'm of the discipline of having you know, less ambitious articulation and having every piece work as best it can. Saint Sin asks a great question. He says, my first exposure to your work was the Plan B Rex Gannon figure. How did that come about? So uh, Rex Gannon was my first foray into toy making. And it happened only because of the good graces of a company called Plan B Toys who were uh, previously guys at Resaurus, who went out of business. I worked for uh, Play Along Toys as an unpaid intern, as I said earlier. And because I was the lowest man on the totem pole, and the only person, well, this only one of the only people that was an actual fan of this stuff, they sent me to do the convention circuit. And for me, you know, being probably 22 or 23 at the time, this was a wonderful proposition. I had always wanted to go to San Diego Comic-Con. I always wanted to go to Chicago Comic-Con or Wizard World. So this was a fantastic, you know, opportunity they put in front of me. My tour mate and the guy I was sort of working directly under for these convention plans was a guy named Deal Betts, who um, uh, I think he works at, he's still in the toy industry. He is a big wig in sales. I th think he works at Jax now. He used to work at MGA. He he came from McFarland. That deals a you know close friend. We haven't sort of lost touch uh, in the past couple of years. But Deal was the only other guy in the company that was like a hardcore toy fanatic. So we automatically we instantly got along. And um, so. He took me under his wing and we went out to these conventions and Deal was from Ohio, so he knew very well the Plan B guys, uh, Chris, Jay, and at the time, Tony. And they uh, had sort of all worked at Resaurus. Resaurus went under and they started Plan B Toys and were doing their Special Forces uh, line. Now, I was the biggest fan of Resaurus in the world and I was an even bigger fan of Plan B and their military line. And I had this Rex Cannon character since I was a kid that I always wanted to make. And I somehow, I, I think Plan B, I think Jay and Chris just took pity on me. <laughs> like when I met them, I totally geeked out and I was like, oh, you know, I have your head sculpts from the accessory packs. And, and I had actually emailed them probably a year or two earlier, just as a nobody, sending a pathetic resume of like, painted Warhammer figurines and begging for free work, um, which I don't know if they remember that or not, but uh, I somehow 
convince them to let me purchase from them a exclusive headset. I just wanted to do a little accessory set. And I had no idea how much it would cost or if I could afford it. But, you know, I, they, for some reason, went along with it. I don't know why. I would not have made that same decision. Um, Deal had the great idea. He said, look, you might sell, you know, a dozen head accessory sets. Why don't you just get an entire figure and, you know, go to battle with that? You're going to sell a lot more of a, a cohesive figure than you are just a single piece that people need to be collectors of the line already in order to enjoy. And Deal was 100% right. The one catch was uh, they no longer had access to the tooling for their modern forces line. Rex Scannon was kind of a contemporary or slightly futuristic military story. So um, they were just about to do their... Uh, World War II line. So that meant that I was kind of limited in the body styles I could pick. And uh, I actually ended up picking a German soldier, which to this day I don't know why I didn't just go with one of the U.S. guys because it's, you know, problematic on many levels. But um, the, they were so fantastic and they, they helped get a sculptor to do the head for Rex and you know, they were so generous with their time, and I'm just, you know, I'm always touched with how thoughtful they were to really give a nobody a shot. And the Rex Cannon project failed abysmally. You know, <laughs> for as popular as Knights of the Slice are, people don't always sort of think or know about the, you know, the dozens and dozens of abject failures that sort of come along with that stuff. Rex Cannon was a terrible failure. Um, you know, fans of Nice of the Slice who follow me will know that just within the past year, his inventory was rediscovered in a dusty warehouse. So that's why I've been able to resell Rex. Um, and that was part of why I sort of tooled new bonus heads that you can get with a purchase of a Rex because I wanted to kind of inject a little new life into him. But, you know, and, and then of course we've introduced Rex uh, twice over in the Nice of Slice line, and he will actually be making an appearance this year as well. So, um, yeah, it, it got started because, you know, really generous guys sort of took a chance. They maybe liked my passion or something, I'm not entirely sure, but uh, that was great of them, and uh, that was a really good question. So, I thank you for that. <laughs> Lencho86 asks, are you guys affected by the current tariff trade war with China? Will this affect prices at any point this year? Um, while our category has not today been sort of affected by, you know, the sort of threat tariffs or the trade war or anything like that, the simple mention of trade war and tariffs are enough to create fluctuations, major fluctuations in pricing in China. Um, typically factories will use any turmoil as a reason to increase prices. Prices actually only go up. You know, since I've been making my own toy lines, my prices have never gone down for unit costs. And that's not necessarily, you know, a manipulation of China. I think that's the nature of business and the, especially the nature of using you know, fossil fuels and petroleum and, you know, uh, 
resources that are finite. Um, but the the sort of talk of all this has definitely created ripples. It, it, they don't even need real tariffs in place to start squeezing. And I've seen it in minor ways. Um, I kind of, this is part of the reason why I buy so much product ahead of time. You know, I try to plan for months or a year out and that has insulated me pretty well from the ups and downs of the market um, as it happens. But none of this, just to be clear, none of the sort of posturing or talk or, you know, chest, chest puffing is good for my business. And I don't have a solution if there is a very real tariff situation where I'm taxed, you know, a couple hundred percents for plastic goods coming out of here. I, I think very much uh, that would be the end of Knights of the Slice. I, I We could probably exist for a little bit longer than most companies because we do have inventory of figures, but um, this is good for nobody. And the, you know, without being um, sort of partisan or being political here, uh, it's not good. It's not good. It doesn't help anybody. And there are companies that would shutter overnight if there's a tariff imposed. You know, I think one of the guys at Boss Fight was saying in their message group that, yeah, if they if they sort of install a tariff on this category of plastic goods, that's it. They're shuttering their doors. And frankly, I couldn't blame them. I, I suppose my contingency plan might be to, you know, seek out manufacturing in another company, but that would take months to a year to sort of set up. You know, I, I, I don't know what the other option would be. I guess I would just maybe switch full-time to publishing, which is something we could sort of control a little bit better. But there's terrible margins with publishing, and that wouldn't be very much fun. So I think um, so far we're in the clear. None of this talk from the current administration helps anybody. It's very detrimental to the people that run small businesses. And, um, you know, we, they keep talking about the nuclear doomsday clock being at 10 minutes to midnight. It's, it feels very much the same in terms of manufacturing. But let's be honest. Let's take a bigger look here. All of capitalism is a ticking time bomb. And the exploitation of workers is, you know, it is uh, untenable to a certain point. So we're all just kind of uh, digging as much dinosaur bones out of the earth as we can before it all collapses in on us and uh you know we fulfill our 100 percent guaranteed mortality rate one final question from our good friend snake bites is there ever going to be any vector jump material boys not just the armor but the whole figure in one color uh probably not uh, the vector jump figures have sort of tapered off um you know you always see a decline when new figures are introduced after eh, about three or four releases. And the last Vector Jumps really, really struggled to move. I think we still have some Bumblejet in stock, actually. Um, as far as like doing them in one single color, I don't know that that adds much appeal. I think they sort of work as a two-color figure. And at this point... We have done almost, you know, we've done the majority of the base colors, so it's not that hard to kind of 
do a swap and get a color that's kind of similar. So I don't think that a Material Boy Vector Jump is in the future. I am happy to announce that there is actually one, at least one Vector Jump coming this year that hopefully you guys like. Um, and you know, it's pretty typical to let these styles sunset at a certain point. So I hope, uh, I hope you buy the next Vector Jump when it comes out and maybe he'll have a resurgent popularity and we can do some more. So there you have it. That's our Nostaza pod for tonight, my friends. And I love your questions and answers. So thank you for sending those. And um, we're going to talk some more. I hope you enjoyed a little financial peek behind the scenes of a toy project. And as always, I appreciate your support on Patreon because it lets me not be on conference calls with Hollywood all day and just hang out in my kitchen recording these podcasts. Oh, uh, one important thing to look forward to, I am embarking on a major ambitious podcast series called The History of Toy Biz. Um, I'm going to speak with the great Jesse Falcon in a couple weeks at Toy Fair, and then I'm going to go through his entire team and speak to all of them, and we're going to get to the bottom of what was the inception point of Marvel Legends, what was it like working on X-Men, what you know, how did this all come down? Uh, because they really are one of the greatest toy stories that hasn't been told yet. So look forward to that series. And the only thing left to say is pizza out. <laughs>